You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You've bought your tickets. The ushers are about to open the doors. Yes, the projection has smicha is about to start. But first, you've heard of me on this platform touting NRS, a great company whose many dedicated employees I get to see in action. NRS Pay has recently launched its new cost-cutting program called Cash Discount. The way it works is any vendor using NRS Pay Cash Discount has their sale register tabulating automatically a dual pricing, which offers customers a choice of a cash payment, which could result in up to a 4% discount over swiping their card. If your business meets the $18,000 a month threshold, there's absolutely no monthly fee to incur. NRS Pay Cash Discount makes it less expensive to accept credit cards, so you'll save money while helping your customers save at the same time. NRS is offering a time-limited deal right now on this state-of-the-art system. You'll get a free card reader with zero hidden fees, no long-term contract, and no early termination fee, which means you can switch your processing plan without penalty. NRS Pay is a proud part of the IDT Corporation that I've been associated with for over 10 years and has integrity built into its corporate DNA. I know its founder and officers and salespeople, and they truly stand by their product and will help you with live stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Check nrspay.com for more information or call 833-289-2767. And now here's the projectionist, Hasmicha. Enjoy. Clear the aisles, the projectionist, Hasmicha. I'm here with Yitzchak Kolakowski. Yitzchak, you know, I, I know that you are excited about Another Monster Bash weekend coming up. And once again, I think you've seen almost every film that's going to be offered there. What's the one that uh, piqued your interest the most where you're going this weekend? I'll really be honest. I'm not interested in the films as much as the Hevra. Uh, there's only one movie that I don't really recall seeing. It's Target Earth. So I won't be able to talk about that until afterwards. Target Earth means that Earth is being targeted, yes, by aliens who are yes. zeroing in on Earth. Yes, the theme this weekend is it's Invasion of Monster Bash. It will be eight films at the Palace Theater in Canton, Ohio. And they are all 50s sci-fi alien invasion movies. The Thing, The Blob, The Day the Earth Stood Still, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, War of the Worlds, Invasion of the Saucer Men, which is kind of a goofy one, more kind of my style than the rest. And the first one they'll be showing is Invaders from Mars. So uh, a few movies in color. Three three of the eight movies that they're going to be showing will be in color. Look, you know, clearly, you know, Hollywood was churning out a lot of B and schlock films in the 50s. But one clearly can surmise that this event is just a mirror of the fact that there was a period in that incredible decade when mostly Eisenhower was president, that invasion flicks were the rage. And if one studio did it, another studio did it, special effects notwithstanding. But what I find interesting is, is that it's, it was so prevalent. And, you know, the monster films of the 30s that you're so fond of, which you refer to off-pod as the gothic monsters, the monsters from the classic literature of Shelley's Frankenstein, Stoker's Dracula, um, later joined by the Wolfman, the Mummy. Those are supernatural-type beings or super-scientific-type beings. But, of course, they're rooted not only in that great literature, but also here on this terra firma. 
that this it's either tampering with things we shouldn't tamper with, or there's old evil in the world that we don't realize that it's been with us for so long, like the vampires. What's interesting is that in the 50s, all of a sudden, the terror is from beyond. That doesn't mean there aren't werewolf films in the 50s. I understand there were some as well. But this this new uvda, as we say in our parlance and our rabbinic parlance, is something which I think needs to be remarked upon. And it's monsters, yes, but monsters from beyond, monsters from a different place, from a different planet. How would you, as, as a as a more than just a Sunday morning fan, someone who's thought about these ideas, why would you say, Yitzchok, that the 50s was such a right period for this new idea of monsters invading from the outer space? Well, the Cold War was definitely a big influence in this change. The fear of losing your soul is probably a major aspect. You know, meaning there were two fears. One was annihilation, which is more represented by the giant monsters, the Godzilla, them, you know, giant bugs attacking made by radiation. But this is a different type of a genre. This is the aliens coming from another planet. And in two of the movies that we mentioned, Invasion of the Body Snatchers and the Invaders from Mars, the aliens are taking over human bodies and changing the people where to the point where they are losing their soul. They are no longer who they are. They might look like the same person, but in Invaders from Mars, just the back of their neck, there's a little thing in the back to indicate that they have been taken over and they're not the same person. It's that, you know, your mother... And your father are not necessarily the same people that you thought they were, your teacher at school, the police officer. They're not who they are anymore. The idea is that these aliens are part of a collective. They're not individuals. They're almost like later on in the, in the Star Trek lore, you have the Borg, where it's really just one collective being. So, too, these beings, they lose who they are as individuals and are reduced to you know, merely parts, cogs in a bigger collective. And the, and the fear of communism, which is really, even though it's presented in some kind of a progressive stance, but it's really returning back to old feudalism in a certain way, as opposed to the American idea of individualism, the rugged okay. individualism of America that's being threatened by this idea that, you know, you're going to lose your soul and also the, the religious aspect, which is interesting because then the third movie that they're showing is The Day the Earth Stood Still, which is, as we've discussed before, and War of the Worlds both have religious themes that are explored. Again, many people have already noted that The Day the Earth Stood Still is much more of a pacifist ideology. Carpenter is clearly a symbol of Jesus. So I, I want to push back on, on, on a number of different fronts to your theory. It might be something that is, espou- is espoused in various college courses, but I don't o- agree 100%. What is so scary about the pod people is not, oh, the communists are coming. It questions what is a human being? Because essentially, once the pods take over, they have all the memories and physical attributes of the person that they've replaced. Uh, but they're missing something. They're missing humor. They're missing uh, a sense of joy of life. 
And you're right; they seem to be all connected in a in, in a collective. But, that, but that's my point. That's but that's that's the point of communism is to take away the individual's soul and to put put you into that collective. But, but look, as we already know, right, we've already, you know we extolled Lubitsch two weeks ago. Ninochka was communism in the 1930s, and we know that it really, in a way, showed America that no, communism is not this monolithic you know, squashing everyone's individual ability to think. Yes, it was definitely repressive and terrible, but and it, the way they drew it up on the picture. But I think one of the reasons why Body Snatchers still is a scary film, even though we're not scared of communism anymore, is because it makes us question what it is to be a human. It makes us question what is, right, what is really the difference. The other thing is, if, if your theory is right, and maybe it is, we'd have to do some research on Soviet bloc films that were made during the communist era and try to realize, did they not have the alien invasion? To my limited knowledge, I'm, I, I'm not familiar. In other words, they were definitely into space exploration. We know the Soviets were ahead of us in terms of the ideas of where they were going to go. And even earlier, even earlier, you had the, the Alita, Queen of Mars in the silent era was a, was a Soviet film. But you, it was all about human beings going to the other planets, not about the the aliens invading invading us. I think you might have a point. Again, part of what's, you know, Stanislaw Lem's classic Solaris, which I think Steven Soderbergh remade, what we have is a cosmonaut traveling out to a space station or to a planet and discovering, you know, the, uh, the evil of this alien intelligence that's there. So there is, a, again, a sense of that unknown that's like tethered to the science, but it isn't, as you say, it's not that the invaders are coming here to take over the planet. You're saying the Soviets aren't worried about that because they, they sort of want to take over the planet themselves just in a similar way. It's fascinating because they're not making films about the fear of America coming in, you know, because they, they always had this idea of, you know, the West is going to corrupt our people and so forth, but you don't, you didn't have that in the film the filmography of, of, of the Soviet Union. I would, add, I would add another thing, but I think part of why this becomes the monster du jour is the monster from outer space, the, the alien. And, and not all of them infiltrate and take on humanoid aspects. I think part of it was the fact that the idea of the science that could enable travel to another planet was more of a reality in the 50s than it was, you know, even in some of the earliest films like The Trip to the Moon and some of the, you know, the, the, the serials in, in the 30s and 40s, there was a sense with the, with the success of the atomic bomb and many of the other, like, almost superhuman type of inventions that were unleashed in World War II in many sh shapes and forms. I think this fueled the collective feverish imagination of many that, well, look where we're going. So there's probably, there might be others out there that could also have this ability. Unlike monsters that are just supernatural in nature, these are not supernatural monsters. These are just more highly advanced technological beings. So I think part of it is, is as you say, it's, it's, it's it, part of it, I think, is a, a fascination with technology. And maybe warning against the evils of what it could be. One of the most devastating scenes 
in, in, in these eight films are being shown, uh, as I mentioned, that there is a religious theology in War of the Worlds, in the 1953 War of the Worlds, was that there was a priest who it makes a statement of saying, these beings are of a higher intelligence, so they must be closer to the creator. And so he walks toward the alien ship, holding his Bible, reciting the 23rd Psalm, and then he's blasted and totally destroyed, which is really not very comfortable to me as, as, as a person of faith to see that, you know, and, and, and devastation of that, although I think the movie redeems itself in the end when the people all go to their various churches to, to pray, you know, realizing the world is coming to an end, and then they're, they are saved in the end. But, uh, you know, this, which do we find? Because, you know, you have Plan 9 from outer space, you have the opposite, you know, that being having a reputation as, as the worst movie ever made, which I don't think it deserves. But nonetheless, you have a theme that's, uh, that's you looked into there as to do the aliens believe in God? Are they closer to the God? Are they working, you know, to do God's work, you know, kind of in the sense of the day they're still preventing us from harming ourselves and harming the world. And which is it? Are these aliens like in the day they're still higher beings or are they like in the war of the worlds, the lowest aspects of, of the most base, you know, usage of, you know, does, does a higher technology, and I think that's maybe the answer to what, what is the dichotomy there, is that, you know, does a higher technology necessarily mean something more sublime and we know you know history has taught us no history has taught us that as advanced as as germany was they still became the most animalistic and and were i don't want to insult animals to say you know when when god is taken out of the picture when morality and ethics are taken out of the picture and replaced with maybe some ceremony and pomp and circumstance but nothing really filled with anything real they can just become destructive and, and, and base and, and evil. You know, obviously Hollywood had to, in many ways, put some sort of positive spin and ending on all of these films, whether it was like last week we talked about it becoming a dream at the end, uh, or at least here is the victory of faith over just pure cold science. But many times the filmmakers and why the appeal to the audience wasn't necessarily because of the sugar-coated ending. Many times it was based on, you know, the the thrills and the excitement and maybe even the fascination with the machinations of the villains. You know, we could go back and analyze many, many films in terms of the you know, the morality play aspect of it versus, you know, the, the great villainy that, that's always being exhibited. I, I think that some of it probably is also sort of the roller coaster like experience that we've talked about with 3D about what the 50s film going was. I don't remember seeing drive ins being part of the 30s and 40s landscape as much. Part of it was to have fun with something ridiculous as well. Part of it was it's a ride, it's a roller coaster ride. I think that might be another reason why. You know, we have these films. The The theaters were ordering them. They liked them. You know, and again, people are looking for some place to go. Obviously, these films would uh, would not translate at all on the small screen. We've talked about how Hollywood turned around and went to Playhouse 90 and all the other prestige type of 
programs that were being made for television and turn them into serious films. That was, This is not part of that. I think that might be another reason why we have these these monster these these space invader films. The point of view of the films are are interesting. You know, the the one film I mentioned, the first one they're going to show this weekend, the Invaders from Mars, is the point of view of a child. And we've spoken in the last few weeks about child actors and and that point of view. And and so and and those two movies, the Invaders from Mars, Invasion of the Body Snatchers are similar themes, but Invaders from Mars is from a child's perspective, and Invasion of the Body Snatchers from an adult's perspective. It, it's it's looking at those same themes from, you know, the, that different point of view also makes, makes something interesting to discuss and to look into. There's not one size that fits all in discussing a whole series of films, but clearly... You, you can make a Western that's an anti-hero Western. You can make a Western that's just a shoot 'em up comedy. Uh, we know that part of it is got to make money. So therefore, why was this the format that various auteurs decided to insert their, their, their disparate visions into? And the reason is, is because there was something about the alien invasion that was somehow fundamentally accepted by the audiences that were going to go out and put their money down for it. All right, you might have you might have a serious filmmaker. You might have someone who just wants to have fun. You might have someone who has a greater theme. But they can't just go out there and do their spiel unless they insert it into the tsura of what was popular. And I think that's really what we're talking about. And we can talk about this in Westerns or the genre that I want to speak about, which is, because I gave you the COVID, but let's go back now to the gangsters, films of the 1930s. And I want to talk primarily about a film that spurred my interest. I was not familiar with it. Roland Brown directed it. Roland Brown seems to have had a very intense and wild history in Hollywood. He fought with producers, physically fought with them. He was supposedly a communist. And he made, he directed three films. He was a screenwriter of many others, many of them that are considered classics. But the film that he directed, the first film that he directed, was Quick Millions, a 1931 pre-code film with Spencer Tracy. As people who have been listening to this program know, I am a big Spencer Tracy fan. He was one of my father's, Ola Sholm's favorite actors. Could always sit and watch Spencer Tracy. And of course, the Spencer Tracy that I knew was the Spencer Tracy, not just the way he became the old codger in Justice in Nuremberg or in the the almost sort of self-parodied version of him in Who's Coming to Dinner, but rather the Spencer Tracy, who was the everyman, the Spencer Tracy, who was frustrated with Catherine Hepburn sometimes and Pat and Mike and Woman of the Year, the Spencer Tracy, who had humor, who had knowledge. He was the person that in many ways Tom Hanks strives to be like and that people see in him. He's the guy, the every guy. That's why in that's a mad, mad, mad world. It was strange that he should be the villain. And yet he started off his career playing a villain or playing very villainous-like, because in the 30s, especially in that era of 1930, 31, 32, Hollywood couldn't get enough of another type of monster, Yitzhak, the gangster. This fellow who somehow starts off as a little kid who lets these demons out of his psyche and takes advantage of what's around him, usually in some big city like New York or Chicago, whether it's Paul Muni and Scarface, somehow we start with the, the origin story of this, of this kid. It's Little Caesar, it's Cagney, it's Edward G. Robinson, in this case it's Spencer Tracy, 
who decides he's not going to be a chump. He's too lazy to work. He's got an idea that trucking is so crucial for a city to run. All he's got to do is take over the trucking industry and he has to uh, manhandle it. He can get these bums into it and everybody's got to pay protection. And within a couple of years, as uh, as Roland Brown shows you, and he does this so wonderfully, I've talked many times Yitzhak, about how filmmakers are able to show the passage of time. He shows it in a, such an inventive way by having a number of different license plates. So you see different license plates with the years emblazoned on the bottom go from series to series from the late 20s into the 1931, into the present day. And by the present day, this guy who starts off as a truck driver and, you know, gets into a fight with Edward Kennedy, the cop, and then is sent to jail for a couple of weeks, finally figures out he's not going to just be some sort of working guy. He's going to steal, but but not actually do the stealing. He's going to get other people and he's going to benefit from graft and what was called racketeering at the time. And the film really is shot beautifully. Uh, Rowan Brown definitely had a very distinct point of view. There is an incredible scene that I, where after a number of years, after he's already a kingpin and raking it in from society, he has a dinner where the judges, the chiefs of police, the various rich notables of the town are all invited and they're getting a testimonial dinner for one of them. And there's close-ups of all of them eating in such a grub and um, sort of a way that would the average person would find meals. And then a robbery occurs. And what they want is the jewels, the, the money, and also any sort of private letters or anything that they have on their personage. Tracy playing Bugs Raymond is has planned this testimonial, but as we discover... He's also been the one who has planned the robbery. So not only does he have all these public officials wrapped around his finger, he now has them even more wrapped around his finger because he has a whole bunch of private goods on them, which allows him to continue to blackmail them and continue to rake off, smear off the top of the trucking industry, the milk industry, whatever it is, The the this movie indicates that there is organized crime everywhere. And the, the key is on organization. And Tracy is, of course, uh, an intelligent actor. And even though he plays a sort of rough and tumble kid from the streets, he shows a raw intelligence and understanding of how he can get to anybody. And the, like I said, the film is a number of different vignettes. It's, it's sort of like episodic. And you can see various examples. In fact, People question how how did Raymond Brown, as the screenwriter and director, know about how this sort of graft and and and, and corruption happened? He seemed to have an inner knowledge of how gangsterism worked because they they paid money in order to find out how the big construction projects were going. They found out who the subcontractors were. And what they did was they terrorized them to a point that they would not go to work unless it was for the mob, for the mafia, for for his organization. So the, the film is really, in a way, somewhat like a documentary about how mob corruption works in a big city. And, and like Paul Muni and Scarface, like Cagney in Public Enemy and Edward G. Robinson and Little Caesar, 
one gets to, of course, zero in on the Achilles heel. All of them have an Achilles heel, these, these 30s monsters. They're not monsters from the Gothic world. They're us. They're kids who perhaps were treated unfairly, but they're taking advantage of the system. And most of them fall because they somehow reach beyond. It's not great law enforcement that stops them. What stops them eventually is the fact that they get too big for their britches. Some of their partners in crime can't stand the fact that they are, they have insulted them or muscled them out or whatever it is. And, or in this film, as the tagline of the film went in many of the places where it was advertised, he didn't like his girlfriend that was unsophisticated and he tried to really be connected to the sister of the construction magnate who was obviously beyond him in terms of social standing. He pursued her, even though it was clear he couldn't have her. And his pursuant, uh, his pursual of her estranges him to all his old friends. And as it says, he met, Samson met his Delilah, and that's what causes him to fall. My point here, Yitzchuk, is, is that these films were extremely popular, whether it was Tracy, whether it was Cagney, whether it was Evergy Robinson, they wanted to see these stories. Why did they want to see these stories? What was it that that was tapping into? I would say part of it is it was a way to vicariously live the life of the gangster. It was a way to sort of agree that things are corrupt. 1949, Yitzhak has, I think, one of the last great gangster films, which is White Heat. And in that film, of course, the police are really crucial in outing him and discovering him and bringing him down. I think here in the 30s, there was a sense that all the systems are corrupt. In Quick Millions, when one of the, uh, the, the DA or someone comes to meet Bugs Raymond and he says, look, your system is corrupt, mine is corrupt. It's all about what men, men make up. So you've got a system of laws, but we know we can buy you off. So what are you going to do? You're going to bring this guy, put him into the electric chair, and make a hero out of him, or have people snitch, etc. I have another system. You have a system. I have a system. The fact that your system is called law doesn't mean that it's any less corruptible than mine. And the film basically acknowledges that. The film acknowledges that that even the, the great American system of laws and rules is really something that can be bent and turned around if you just have the gumption and knowledge of how to do that. And I think part of this, Yitzchak, is going back to communism again. I think there were many writers, uh, although I'm not going to say Ben Hecht had communist leanings, but... No, he certainly didn't. <laughs> but I'm saying, but there were many writers and people who were in Hollywood at the time who felt that there was corrupt, that this was a corrupt system that we were living in, that there was a, a tremendous amount of inequity. This was the period of the Depression. And the Depression, although it was a national tragedy, there were many finger pointers to the fact that it was the banks, that uh, the, there was the run on the banks, there was the stock market. All of that is built on a capitalist society that only benefits a half of a percent of the population. And those are the people that the films try to show are all in cahoots with the gangsters, that these guys are not lily white uh, captains of an industry who are making a better America. They are actually people who are creating wage slaves. And although it's true, these monsters that arise, who also sort of become rival magnates, 
it's really another form of corruption. And that's part of what I think the film, this film specifically, is tapping into. I think that's part of the reason why the average Joe Lunchpail was interested in watching these gangster films. I'm not sure if it was like a morality play to teach him to be a good boy. I think it was a, a, a way to, to, to vicariously enjoy the ride of that gangster and to watch him knock people off. There is some musical parts of this film, including George Raft's, I, I wouldn't call it a, 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 a pirouette, but he definitely does some moves there, which I think uh, are quite impressive. Uh, and he doesn't even have a coin in his hand in the film at all. He carries a revolver and he's quite, you know, he's, he's quite ruthless about it. Again, the film does pay lip service to uh, women's leagues that want to uh, uproot corruption, but it also has some of the people who are arguing for stopping the corruption as actual people who had been corrupt themselves. Yes, I was part of it, but now I want to turn over a new leaf. So I, I think this is really the monster of the 30s. And I think it's like World War II did a lot to sort of solidify belief in the positivity of the American way of life. I think that the the reason why these films, although there were film noirs that dealt with, you know, very seedy type of characters, and there were still some corrupt policemen, in general, it wasn't going to be standard anymore. The procedural, the police procedural, which was an outgrowth, like Naked City and other films from the late 1940s, was an outgrowth of the belief in the correctness of the American way of life and the systems that we had here. You know, I think it was uh, buttressed by the Eisenhower administration and other things. But I think, therefore, we don't really see Yitzchak with a gangster film in the 50s. It, 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 it's, it's not there. And we don't even have remakes of, of, we don't even have films in the 50s that take us back to the roaring 20s or the 30s. There is, at the end of the era, of the end of the 1950s, we have the story of Legs Diamond, uh, Arnold Rothstein. There are a couple of, of films of the late 50s that are sort of like, a, and of course, the, uh, the Untouchables television program. But I think it's, it's, it's connected, of course, with the Untouchables, or the FBI, who are going to actually clamp down on it, as opposed to really relishing the gangster life, to actually make us a fly on the wall and have us really sort of vicariously enjoy that human monster. So we've discussed, of course, The Godfather here uh, on, on, on The Projectionist. Obviously, gangster films made a tremendous comeback. And part of it, Yitzchak, was that they, the Hayes Code or anything like it you know, disappeared completely. And you could see that there was sort of a, a simcha on the part of the audiences to sort of get into the lives and conquests of, of, of organized crime and of, of, of very, very despicable in many ways unprincipled characters well well and, and that's my question is in the 30s did you have that aspect of the organization in the in organized crime of the of the mobster of the gangster of being of that how organized the gang is as much as that was highlighted later whether you know like you said in, in the in The Godfather and, and, or in, in all these later films or in, in, in television, The Sopranos, where the focus was the family. You don't have, you didn't really have that idea of the family of the older uh, gangster movies, probably more for the reason that 
part of it might have been a, a kind of a sense of uh, political correctness that was more so in the 30s that you, you didn't want to pick on certain ethnicities. You know, I think you might be hitting on something here. Let me let, let me respond. Having seen many gangster films of the 30s, plus The Sopranos and The Godfather and, and Casino, Goodfellas, <laughs> you know, having seen the whole gamut, I would say that one of the luxuries that The Godfather had was a tremendous amount of production capital to be able to produce a two and a half, three hour sort of epic. Quick Millions is, is one hour and six minutes or one hour and nine minutes, right? So it, 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 I believe it effectively shows organization. It shows not only his assassin, but it shows the various machinations and who you have running things, what sort of shysters you might have, what sort of fixers you might have. The Godfather, as you say, was not afraid of upsetting the Italian-American community. In the 30s, it's possible the same people that you were sort of making movies about would come in to the studios and shut you down, right? The same way they would strong, they would strong arm uh, the milk drivers in quick millions and, 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 and use machine guns to basically get them to pay protection money. They did not want to have films that came so close to life that, you know, that would bring down heat upon them. So, you know, I, I think that you, I think you're yeah, on. Because that, that's, that's a major change in this genre, meaning that the sci-fi alien invasion genre, you know, there's not much of a difference between Independence Day in the 90s and, and War of the Worlds in the 50s, except, you know, the special effects change. That's, you know, the storytelling didn't get any better. You know, it was still a hokey, probably more hokey. And, and although, you know, there were more highbrow you know, alien invasion films, uh, you know, later in history as well. But it's just going back to the same old well, whereas when this, when the gangster genre, the mobster genre was retold later in history, it wasn't going to the same well. It, it wasn't as much focusing on, well, it's still focusing on the violence, but it was, there was, there was, I think the storytelling changed. And like you said, part of it was because, like you said, instead of, the special effects being the change of the budgets, you know, it was that now you have time, you're going to make an epic film, you're going to, but they, why wasn't, there were epic films, you know, in the 30s, in the 40s, in the 50s, in the 60s. Why did it take until the, the, the 70s? And we can, have a, we can have another program about the concept of epics. But I think Warner's, which was at the forefront of the gangster film, saw these as quickly made star vehicles for Cagney, for Evergy Robinson, or, for, or uh, in, in this case, you know, it was something that, that promoted Spencer Tracy. And epics were usually seen as costume dramas. They were seen as some sort of, based on some sort of famous novel like Gone with the Wind. Had, had Puzo not written The Godfather, I'm not sure if there would have been enough in the imaginations of even people like Francis Ford Coppola to construct a complete epic. I think there was something about the source material, the fact that it was a national bestseller, that, that is part of it. The concept of epics were sorted, was, was sand, was, was biblical, was, there was no Western epics either. Ep epic right. had to do with something that because of the time period, you know, like again, you could have 
you know, David Copperfield could be an epic uh, from MGM. You know, they could have something that was somehow, or or even a tale of two cities. In a certain sense, you could kind of say that Forbidden Planet was a, maybe not as long as the typical epics, but it was still compared to other science fiction, it was more of an epic science fiction film than a. So, I, and I think that's probably the answer to your question. I think the other difference between, you know, we talk about gangsters and monsters. I think what happens in The Godfather and the other iterations of the gangster film is that unshackled from the Hayes Code, as I said before, is also the ability to have very graphic violence and, and to have uh, not just the hint of promiscuity, but actually to actually you know, revel in that as well. So I think it's, you know, it, you... you 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 have an almost an ultra realism that has this dirty little pleasure of watching. I, I think the '30s films, despite the fact even this pre-code gem, still it could not just be totally out there. I think it, it had to intimate quite a bit, and I think they stand as really a very um, I would say ambitious pieces uh, of, of of creating as we said, a, a, a genre of film. Well, whether it's the monster or the gangster, I think that our fascination with the creature or the grotesque transformations that can occur within us allow us, I believe, Yitzhak, to sort of dally in that fantasy and pull ourselves back. I don't think, Yitzhak, that the 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 audiences who eventually watched these films were necessarily corrupted and deciding, well, I'm going to turn to this life of crime. But I think that that unless we give ourselves some exposure to what we know are our natural tendencies, unless we sort of see it reflected, I, I think that and, and and we sort of give it we give it expression by watching. By thinking, I think it, it, I, I think that's a way not we to supplement it in a way. I, I think otherwise, I think it comes back. I, I think the fact that it's out there as the monster that eventually is 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 conquered, or the, the crook that gets sent to the electric chair or gets knocked off as in Quick Millions uh, by his buddies, I think that we satisfy that sort of aspect within ourselves, and I think we can be healthier afterwards. I'm not going to say like you had suggested earlier, Yitzhak, that we sort of like use these films to inspire us to, to, our, to our, the better part of our soul. There are films that do that. I think these films, you want to see the monster. You want to see, the, you, you want to see how the gangster rises. But if it's done well enough, you can go back and that's all you need. Despite things that were said like by extremists like Frederick Wortham, the uh, who wrote Seduction of the Innocent, which of course spurred a whole campaign against comics and against, of course, you know, Mad Magazine and others, um, other things. I don't think that whatever the leagues of decencies, the League of Decencies decided, I don't think that the gangster films led to an increase in what was called juvenile delinquency. And, you know, the monster films, I don't think, you know, were even possible. It's like we'll be able to, to be turned into uh, pieces of 
poisonous ideas. But I think we need these. I think both of us understand that, that unless we have this sort of this vicarious excitement, it ends up inserting itself into our lives, our lives in ways that we don't notice. Is it possible, Yitzchak, you think that, uh, would you want your kids never to see or never to feel the terror of, of the pod people? Or would you want them only to see Bambi and, and Thumper? No, I, well, even Bambi, you're going to see Bambi's mother get killed. So that, that experience of, of that pain and that is, it's, it's always going to be something that's pain. And that's, you know, that's, that's the, so much of the problem of the world of trying to shelter us from, from seeing things that it's, it doesn't, it doesn't always work out in the way that we want it to. It's, it's more healthy, I think. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I, you know, looking at the world and how, you have in the from world people who are very sheltered, and then when they get exposed to something a little bit, they can't handle it. I'd rather, you know, have some kind of almost a uh, a vaccine, and you know, an inoculation against that by by having that exposure. Yes, well, we definitely you know, hear it. Hear it, the projectionist. Go get yourself vaccinated. <laughs> get either get either the monster variant or the gangster variant. Watch your step on the way, everybody. We'll catch you next time. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.